Our scripture reading tonight comes from the Gospel of John in chapter 3, beginning at verse 22. John 3:22 and I'll be reading through the end of the chapter at verse 36. After these things Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea and there he remained with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was much water there and they came and were baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, as we return again this evening to your word, I pray that you would prepare our hearts to receive it, that we would Know more of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom we have redemption and eternal life. I pray that we would see through John an example of of humility, but even in that humility, what made John great and what made him one approved by Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So who is the greatest person who ever lived? Now, probably lots of people have lots of different answers. Some might choose someone from history, a great world leader. Maybe others might pick a family member that was particularly special, uh, that they had respect or honor for. Some might pick a character from the Bible. Now, as Christians, our default answer should probably be Jesus. Jesus was the greatest man who ever lived because he was God incarnate and lived perfectly and without sin. And he has redeemed us from our sins. And yet, who did Jesus say was the greatest person who ever lived? 
It's not a trick question. We actually know the answer. Jesus says in Matthew eleven eleven, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So what makes John the greatest man who ever lived in the eyes of our Lord? Well, he did hold a unique and particular and important position. He was the forerunner of Christ, prophesied in the Old Testament, breaking the centuries of prophetic silence after the conclusion of the Old Testament. Uh, He was an evangelist. He was a proclaimer of repentance. And he shows great humility in that he's not interested in building his own following or his prestige, uh, as even others around him are. Most of all, John makes consistent and faithful confession and profession of who Christ is. Earlier in John, we saw John confess that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He knew who Jesus was and what Jesus had come to do before just about anyone else. We will see in our text tonight that John continues to proclaim and confess what is true of Christ. He also recognizes that with Christ's coming, he has fulfilled. John has fulfilled the task that God has given him, and so he will recede from view. Now again, John is humble. He knows where he stands in relation to Christ. And so tonight, after some weeks talking about the early ministry of Christ, we get another snapshot of John the Baptist, who, as I said, at least in the eyes of our Lord, was the greatest man who ever lived. We will look at this snapshot of John tonight in three points. First, we see that there is a dispute in verses 22 through 26. There is a three-way conflict, it seems, between John's followers, Jesus' followers, and the Jews. Second, we see that John shows deference in verses 27 through 30. When confronted with this dispute, how does John respond? He does not respond out of self-interest or to defend his turf. And then third and finally, there's a declaration in verses 31 through 36. What does John teach concerning Jesus Christ? So again, we have a dispute, we have deference, and we have a declaration. First, we see a dispute in verses 22 through 26. We see that after Jesus visit to Jerusalem, in which he cleansed the temple and met with Nicodemus, he and his disciples moved from Jerusalem into the countryside of Judea. This is the area surrounding Jerusalem. Now, before this, for instance, when Jesus was at the wedding in Cana, and at other times in his ministry, we will often see Jesus is working in Galilee, the rural northern area around the Sea of Galilee. But for this moment, Jesus and his disciples will spend some time in Judea, in the southern area. Now, when they set up shop in Judea, we see in verse 22 that they start baptizing. Now, we get a clarifying remark in chapter 4, verse 2, that this is not Jesus himself baptizing, but his disciples under his supervision. Now, where this gets tricky is that, as we saw before, back in chapter 1, there are already two other factions that are looking to control the baptism market in Judea. There are the Pharisees, 
who would claim mastery of all ceremonial washings and regulations. They were the ones who, just for one example, imposed all the washings that made necessary those giant water jugs of chapter 2 that Jesus used to turn water into wine. And all the way back in chapter 1, the Pharisees being concerned about this new movement forming out in the wilderness around John the Baptist that had a washing ritual, they sent some priests and Levites to question John the Baptist and find out what he was doing and why. And in fact, it was there that John confessed that Jesus was coming and that John's purpose was to be the forerunner to him. But now with Jesus and his disciples coming into Judea, there is a new wrinkle in this ongoing dispute. We see that in verses 22 and 23 that this place where Jesus and his disciples came to baptize was close to where John and his disciples were already baptizing. So we do have people still coming to John to be baptized, but also increasingly there are those who might have otherwise come to John that are coming to Jesus instead. We also get in verse 24 a historical and chronological note that this is before John was imprisoned. Obviously, as once he goes into prison, he will never come out. But another layer to this dispute emerges in verse 25. While Jesus' disciples and John are now baptizing in close proximity, there also remains this discomfort on the part of the Jews concerning these new washing rituals that have popped up. And we see that once again, the Jews and John's group will clash over this concern about ceremonial purification. And John's disciples are concerned about this, but they are also concerned about their new neighbors, Jesus and his followers. And we see this in verse 26, when John's followers say, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. So it seems that they're not thrilled about the people going to Jesus and his disciples instead of coming to them. This is in their eyes something of a turf war. We are here, we were here first and baptizing already, and now they've just come and set up shop next door. And they expect John to share in their concerns. Now they acknowledge what John had said before, his testimony concerning Christ, but they still seem to see Christ's presence and his growing influence and their waning influence as a problem. Now it often happens in the church and in ministry that there can be an inclination toward jealousy. When a new church comes into an area, the existing churches around can be jealous that they're taking away potential growth that they might otherwise have when God is doing a mighty work among one group. Another group might be bitter and resentful that it's not happening for them. But this is not a proper Christian response. And John will confront their jealousy soon enough. But also, we're at a moment in John's gospel of a paradigm shift. Once the reality of Christ has come, the forerunner's work is mostly done. And this brings us to our second point. After the dispute rises and we see John's response to it, which is one of deference in verses 27 through 30. So how does John answer this concern of his disciples? Well, first he tells them, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. Now, this would be a challenge to the impulse of jealousy. 
People are not going to Jesus and away from John because of anything bad or wrong with John. They're going to Jesus because God has purposed that this is what must happen. John was the forerunner. John was the foreshadowing. Jesus is the reality. John knows that his place and purpose and people were not because of his efforts and his teaching and his power, but because it was the will of God for them to come to him. Now it is the will of God that they turn from him and to Christ, the fullness and fulfillment of what John had declared and done. And John reminds his disciples of this in verse 28. He's been telling them the whole time that his purpose is to prepare the way for Christ. John knows his prophetic role. His place is the forerunner. Back in chapter 1, he tied himself, tied his own work to prophecies of Malachi and Isaiah. And to further reinforce this point now in chapter 3, John tells a brief parable, that of a wedding. He says, He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So let me put this in something more plain and modern. When you go to a wedding, who is the star? Who is the focus of the festivities? Why is everyone there? Who are they there to see? Well, they're there to see the bride and the groom. So what would happen if, say, you were the best man or the maid of honor at a wedding and you went to the wedding and rather than rejoice and celebrate the bride and groom, you were trying at every step in the festivities to draw attention away from the bride and groom and toward yourself. You were stirring up attention, stirring up drama, doing other things to draw attention away from them and to you. Well, that would be very rude. It would be very improper. It would probably be a quick way to get everyone at the wedding to dislike you. Maybe you've seen this. It does happen at weddings where some people who are not the center of attention want to be the center of attention, and it's not flattering. Someone incites conflict or causes a scene or otherwise violates the decorum of the wedding, and it's awkward. So John is basically putting himself in the position of a good friend or a good best man, and then he realizes this is not his wedding. This is not his party. He is there to rejoice with everyone else for the groom, who is Christ, and the bride, his people. So in addition to putting proper perspective on John's role, this parable evokes one of the most powerful biblical images of Christ. He is the groom and the church is his bride. Christ came to earth to claim his bride, to save and gather a people for his name, to love her and to give himself for her. And John rejoices in Christ's coming rather than lament the decline of his own influence. Basically, John came to announce the wedding. Now the wedding is happening. And John knows it's his time to politely step aside and let the groom and the bride have center stage. He summarizes this well in verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. So the time for John's ministry is drawing to a close. Remember that John the author noted before that this 
was before John the Baptist was imprisoned. Eventually, John will be arrested. He will go to prison and he will be executed because of Herod's wickedness. But for now, in this moment, he is sharing in the rejoicing of Christ who has come to bring life and salvation to the world. Were that we had more people like John the Baptist in our churches, those who would rather than seeking their own power and positions and influence and fame, were content to let Christ be the center of all. Those who would rejoice in the work of God wherever it happens instead of being jealous and nitpicky and critical. People who were more interested in bringing people into one unified body of Christ than building their own brand and causing fights among other groups and seeking to distract from Christ's glory. Part of what makes John the greatest man who ever lived is that he is first and foremost and preeminently focused on the glory of Christ over his own glory. He is not jealous of Christ's glory. Rather, he loves and desires to see Christ glorified and is content with the station where Christ has set him. Richard Phillips comments on this passage, and he talks about two kinds of ambition, godly ambition and ungodly ambition. Basically, godly ambition is what John the Baptist shows. It is ambition to do the will of God, to love the things that God loves, to serve God and to proclaim Christ in the world. And this is said in contrast to ungodly ambition, which is the kind of ambition that we as fallen and sinful people usually have, the ambition for our stuff, our things, our agenda. John the Baptist very much models godly ambition, the striving for what gives glory to God. Now, John's followers have allowed themselves to be captive to envy and strife. And they have brought their envy and strife of Christ's glory and work to John. But John gets it right. He is not ambitious for himself. He is ambitious for Christ's kingdom. So will we do likewise? But John does not only show deference here, putting the spotlight on Christ where it belongs he will also teach his disciples concerning Christ. And so this brings us to our final point. After the dispute and after deference, we come to John's declaration in verses 31 through 35. John gives us several reasons why Jesus is greater than he, why Jesus must increase while John decreases. Now first, John recognizes Jesus' origin. That is, in verse 31, he recognizes that Christ has come down from heaven, while he, John, was from the earth. To recognize that Christ is the one who has come down from heaven is to recognize that he is divine, to recognize that he is God. We looked at this before, back in the opening of chapter 1. is a very important theme in John's gospel. John the Baptist recognizes the divinity of Christ and also that he himself does not rise to that. He is from the earth. While John is an important man, a great man, a prophet, a forerunner to Christ, at the end of the day, he is just a man. One born of ordinary generation, in the words of our catechism, as such liable to the guilt of Adam's original sin as well as his own sin, and in need of a redeemer. 
Now, second, John declares his belief in Christ's teaching in verse 32. Because Christ is God come down in the flesh, when he testifies of God the Father, it is eyewitness testimony and certain to be accurate. But John also recognizes a sad truth. No one receives his testimony. Now, John is perhaps being a little hyperbolic, for it is not that absolutely no one has received Christ's testimony. John himself, for one, has received and proclaimed Christ's testimony. But by comparison to the great mass of unbelief, an entire world lost and dying in its sins, it is very few. Remember from chapter 1 how it was written that Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. It was the rulers of Jesus' own people, the Jews, who have thus far met him with the greatest resistance and opposition. Who was it that started this controversy that has led to John's discourse here at the end of chapter 3? It was those Jews who wanted to dispute not over salvation, but over rites of purification. They were so concerned with the external, visible, outward things of religion that they had no concern for the very God of very God who walked in their midst. Even John's own disciples, with their proximity to John, who bore witness to Christ very truly and accurately, his disciples struggled to see and know and understand this truth. We are once again confronted with the fact that no one can believe in the things of God unless God by the Spirit enables such belief. One can have walked where Jesus walked, spent time with John the Baptist just up the road from where Jesus was, drank the wine that Jesus made in Cana, watched him cleanse the temple, sat down across the table to hear him talk of being born again, and none of it would mean anything apart from the Spirit's illumination of the heart and mind. Now third, John makes clear that belief in Christ is belief in God. That is what he does in verse 33. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. To receive Christ's teaching is to receive the truth of God. So the converse is also true. To not receive Christ's teaching is to not receive God. Now, this is a very unpopular teaching in our day where people like to believe that all roads lead to God. Many believe that you could be a Jew or a Muslim or a Mormon or a Buddhist or an atheist. And as long as you believe so devoutly, as long as you have some kind of faith, you will be saved. You will have eternal life. Well, nothing can be further from the truth. Even the Jews with their oracles of God in the Old Testament that they have received. By their rejection of Christ, they rejected their God. Those who would trouble Jesus and John over washings and ceremonial observances and legalisms, but would not believe Christ, honor Christ, worship Christ, remain dead in their sins. This was the teaching more than any other that would put Jesus at odds with them and even provoke them to put him to death. It is the teaching that is most provoking in our day. No Christ, no God. No Jesus, no salvation, no eternal life. It is Christ or it is death. 
To believe Christ as he is revealed in Scripture is to believe in God. No other belief in God is true or will stand at the last day. Now, fourth, John states that Christ's teaching is anointed and empowered by the Holy Spirit in verse 34. Christ speaks the words of God because God does not give the Spirit by measure. Now, what does that mean? It means that not only is Christ the fullness of the revelation of the Father, but he has the fullness of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Christ's work is a work of intra-Trinitarian love and fellowship and cooperation. While others of God's people, including John himself, receive a certain anointing of the Holy Spirit, Christ receives the full outpouring. John himself personally bore witness to this when he baptized Jesus and the Father spoke that he was pleased with his Son, and then the Spirit appeared as a dove and rested upon Jesus. But fifth, John testifies that the Son has dominion over all things. The Father has given all things into the Son's hand. There is nothing that is the Father's that is not also the Son's. Between the Father and the Son, there is true unity and harmony, such that the Son's words are the Father's words. The Son's works are the Father's works. And the Son's power is the Father's power. And the Son will own the world twice over. For he does not only own and rule the world by virtue of being its God and creator, but also by virtue of being its redeemer. He conquers Satan and sin and death by virtue of his redeeming work. But having set forth these glories of the Son of God, here in this discourse, John gets to the call, the challenge, the application in verse 36. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God rests upon him. This belief in Christ, that is belief in God, is the only way to everlasting life. To reject Christ is to reject life. There is no salvation outside of Christ. There is no salvation in the keeping of the ceremonial law. There is no salvation in washings. There is not even salvation in Christian baptism if it is not united to faith in Christ that is worked by the Holy Spirit. Salvation is in the gospel, is in the work of Christ alone. And this, more than anything else, is why Christ must increase and John and all of us must decrease. Because for whatever we are and whatever we do, Christ and Christ alone brings salvation. No matter how gifted or charismatic or rich or famous or powerful any of us may be or could ever be, we cannot save the world from its sins. But Christ can and Christ has. So, perhaps you're here tonight and you, like these followers of John, have been concerned with your own agenda, your own program, your own influence, your own glory. Whatever you might be doing, pales in comparison to the glories of Christ revealed in the gospel. Do you love Christ and honor Christ and serve Christ in all that you do, setting aside your interests for the good of His? May we all decrease 
so that Christ may increase. Perhaps you are here tonight and you are confronted by John's words of the exclusivity of Christ. Perhaps you have thought that you can know and believe God apart from Christ, or thought that to know God is a matter of indifference. Well, John's words ring true. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not have the Son shall not see life. It can't be made any clearer than that. Do you believe in the Son and so have life, or do you not? This offer of the gospel was made to you once again this day. To all who would repent of their sins and believe in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, God who became a man and fulfilled all righteousness on our behalf and suffered and died to pay the penalty of our sins and who was raised on the third day and is glorified at the right hand of the Father. If you believe on this Son of God, on Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And that is the call for tonight. Will you believe in him? Do you believe in him? Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the glorious gospel truths that were proclaimed through John, the many things about Christ and his glory. And I pray that because of this glory of Christ, first and foremost, that we would all believe it with our whole hearts, and that because of it, we would recognize that Christ must increase and we must, incre- we must decrease in all things. And I pray that we would be faithful towards those ends and to proclaim Christ to a lost and dying world. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>